If you can master logistics and communication, you can run any emergency. All the other stuff is, is easy, it's doable. Those two things are always the things that if they break down, the response breaks down. everybody, and welcome to Structurally Sound, the podcast of the Institute for Homeland Security here at Sam Houston State University, where you can hear all about what is happening in critical infrastructure industries, gain knowledge and new perspectives to be more secure, more resilient, more competitive. I'm one of your hosts, Grant Threet, and I'm joined here in the recording studios of the Dan Rather Communication Building with my co-host, Dr. Marcus Funk from the Mass Communication Department. And unfortunately, our other co-host, Michael Asplund, director of the Institute, is feeling under the weather today and could not join us here in the studio. But the show must go on, as they say, and we are happy to be talking to a longtime friend and advisor uh, to the Institute, Dr. James Madia. And through the miracles of technology, uh, Jim joins us today from Southern California. We'll be hearing about the electrical energy industry and uh, what keeps security professionals up at night and a bit about Jim's career path in critical infrastructure. But uh, first, just uh, saying hello around the studio. Marcus, how are you doing today? I'm good. I can sympathize with Mike because I spent most of the December break sick. I came down with something, brought it home. And, you know, by the time I was feeling better, I had infected my wife. By the time she was feeling better, our infant daughter had gotten it. And it just it, it just became a plague that sort of ate my December. So I hope Mike is feeling all right. <laughs> yeah, our, our, our thoughts go out to him for sure. I think uh, about half of my family was uh, down over Thanksgiving and some stayed down through December. And the other half of us were down for, uh, for the Christmas holidays as well. Jim, how, how's everything in Southern California? How are you doing today? I'm doing wonderful. Thank you so much for having me on your show. I have listened to the podcast from the first episode, and I think that you guys do a fantastic job in this, uh, in this format, and I'm glad to be a part of it. <laughs> and I'm also glad that you segued into my illnesses this morning um, because I'm getting over the flu. So I'm going to push through. But if my voice gets a little hoarse, uh, you'll understand, I hope. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, I hate winter. Can I just make that declarative statement? Just winter sucks. Yeah. And we were we were talking the other day and uh, hard, hard to believe now it's been four years ago that uh, we had two weeks to flatten the curve and uh, the, the pandemic and all that going on it. Seems to still be carrying on and, uh, of course, cold and flu season mm -hmm. ever present with us. So mm -hmm. that's never changing. But thank you, Jim, for uh, for joining us and making yourself available and for the kind words as well. Not only uh, a longtime friend of the Institute and advisor, but a uh, fan of show. So uh, appreciate you being on with us today. I think Mike would offer to give him some swag. Yeah, since he's a fan of the show, I for think sure. I, I think that's that's I'm, I'm going to speak for him a little bit. I promised I'd make some silly jokes 
And now I'm apparently giving away swag. So there you go. There you I'll, go. I'll defer to him. We'll find out what you won later. <laughs> Something tells me it's, it's going to be bright orange, whatever it is. Yes. Fluorescent orange. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> oh, no, that's that's Bearcat orange. And uh, I, I will note here in the studios that both Marcus and I are, are sporting our Bearcat orange because it is Friday and every Friday is Spirit Friday. Oh, is that why y'all always wear? Because we always report on Friday. <laughs> I thought that was just how y'all dress normally. It's close. <laughs> <laughs> Peeking behind the curtain here on structurally sound, Jim. When we were when we were talking and getting ready for the show, we talked a little bit and and we're reviewing some of the connection points. I think you've been knowing Mike for going on thirteen, fourteen years, something like that, and and some other connections with CJ Department and uh, here at Sam Houston. Walk, walk us through yes. a little bit of those connections, if you will. Give a, give a little bit of background of your story uh, for the for the audience to get to know you. Um, so my connection to Sam Houston and the Institute actually started in 2010. Um, I was at the Naval Postgraduate School in the uh, the Center for Homeland Defense and Security. One of my professors was Nadav Murag, who is now uh, your department chair for uh, security studies at Sam Houston. Mm-hmm. And been on the show uh, as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and Nadav and I had a very good uh, working relationship. I loved his class. Um, he just so happened to live close to me too, so we'd bump into each oh. other periodically near the house. Yeah, which was kind of a strange coincidence because I didn't live anywhere close to the institute, but you know that's the way things work in the in the world, right? Serendipity. Mm-hmm. And then <clears throat> Mike Asplin was actually a graduate of the CHDS program and already had his master's degree. He was, a, a I believe, the assistant chief for um, Monterey Police Department. I was halfway through my master's program, and he came into our class to do a presentation uh, on, a, on a bombing uh, case that his department had worked that was particularly of interest for the curriculum that we were involved in at the time. And he and I just hit it off. And we we sort of stayed in touch over the years and uh, maintained a relationship. Uh, and then uh, a couple of years ago, Nadav sent me an email and said, hey, we're expanding our program at Sam Houston and we need some folks to work on course material in uh, critical infrastructure, particularly in the energy sector. And uh, of course, by this time, I, I was working in the energy sector. I was working for a, a large um electric utility doing exactly the work that was uh, sort of the focus of a lot of the training at your institute. Um, so it was kind of a good fit. And the next thing I knew, I was writing uh, course material for Sam Houston and then started coming down to some of the symposiums and getting involved in the advisory boards. So there you go. Yeah, that's great. And mm-hmm. uh, I, we've been, uh, we've been definitely glad to have you and those uh, courses. Uh, actually, I think that um, it was a couple of courses, if I'm if I'm not mistaken, uh, energy security, and then one on uh, chemical and energy resilience. Those are uh, available through Sam Houston at the undergrad level, and then we've also made those into some professional development courses uh, available uh, through our uh, course catalog. So, um, yeah, so those are available for for folks to check out and uh, get some more. Uh, Dr. Maria content, uh, as, as their hearts desire. <clears throat> what, 
Would you? Yeah. So an interesting, interesting story though, too, in, in relation to that was um, last year, um, might've been two years ago. I'm losing track of time. So I was a member of an energy security council, which is based in Houston. And it's an industry support organization that supports the energy sector. It's a lot of gas and oil, but there's some electric utility folks in there. I serve on the board. And I came down for one of the meetings to the Houston area. And it just so happened that the venue for the, that particular meeting was Sam Houston's campus in the Woodlands. And I didn't know Mike was going to be there. And, and I don't think he knew I was going to be there. And I got there super early. I think he was setting up in the morning. And I walked in and I was like, hey, I know you. And he just <laughs> looked at me like, where did you come from? Because <laughs> I, I don't think he knew that I had established a relationship with ESC, right. which there's a lot of overlap between Energy Security Council and the work being done at Sam Houston. So we, we sort of now travel in the same circles, which is kind of an interesting development about that whole time. Well, I think Mike would say, you know, he's big on saying yes to career choices and career decisions and, and leaps of faith when it comes to, you know, career and that sort of thing. And so I think he would be really encouraged. I'm not even sure he would call it serendipity. I think he would say that's the consequence of saying yes and the consequence mm -hmm. of taking risks and taking leaps and really investing in yourself. Uh, I think probably that shared law enforcement background that y'all both have would probably also be his starting point knowing him. Yeah. But why don't you tell us about yeah. that? How did you get from, you know, being a cop to where you are now? Well, as a young man, I bounced around to different jobs and I thought for a minute I was going to be a lawyer. So I went to work for a law firm. I started off in a really menial entry-level job and kind of self-taught myself into a paralegal job. And I was off and running and I thought, this is going to be my career. And I happened to be at a party and I bumped into an old high school friend. And uh, he said, oh, yeah, I'm applying to a police department and I'm, you know, they're getting ready to start my background. And it kind of took me back for a couple of reasons. Number one, this old high school friend of mine would have been sort of the least likely guy in the world to become a cop. So it was a sort of a surprise. And I had secretly always wanted to be in law enforcement, but really didn't have the courage to do it. And if you don't mind me and, jumping um, in, how old were you at this party? Was this a couple of years after graduation or is this like, I'm about to turn uh, 30 yeah. and my high school friends are you know doing crazy I, things. I was probably 19 or 20 maybe at the time. Okay. Okay. So I'm going to say early twenties. Gotcha. Um, and so, you know, we had stayed in touch. It wasn't like we, we'd completely lost touch, but I, I was pretty shocked. So spoiler alert, I became a cop. He became a salesman. So there you go. <laughs> but, <laughs> um, so the funny part about it was I'm so I'm now I'm kind of irritated at this party. So we're driving home from the party. And now I was married at the time. Uh, I got married and had children pretty young. So um, we're driving back home and my wife says, hey, what, you know, what's bugging you? And I'm like, oh you believe it? He's going to be a cop. And I'm not, I've always wanted to do that. She's like, well, why wouldn't you want to try? Oh, gee, I never thought of that. Is that easy? Right. <laughs> so, um, I, so I started applying, uh, and it, and it, and it wasn't easy. I mean, back in the, in the early eighties, uh, the demand for law enforcement jobs was thoroughly outstripped by the supply of ready candidates. 
Um, so the line was long. If there were, you know, a few openings, there were hundreds in line. And if there were a few dozen openings, there were thousands in line. Wow. So it took me a little while, but I finally ended up getting hired and going to the, the LA County Sheriff's Academy in, uh, 1985 is when I started my career. And I ended up, uh, I, I retired, um, midway through my 30th year of service Wow! in 2014. I'm resisting the urge to play sound effects from the police Academy movies. So you say 1985 <laughs> and police Academy, that's exactly yeah, where my mind went to. <laughs> that's, that's also true. Those movies were pretty popular back then, but living through the hell of experience, I can tell you that there was very little funny about the police Academy. Yeah. 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 It was a, it was a pretty sober, serious place most of the time. Yeah, but it didn't, you know, it encouraged you and you built on that. You said 30 years in law enforcement. Just about, yeah, I was uh 29 and some change. And, um, you know, it was a, it was a complete life changer. Uh, I mean, going through the police Academy, developing the discipline to survive it, um, getting through the first year of training, uh, and then some of the things that happened to me in my career, you know, fundamentally changed my personality. And mm-hmm. I'm a much more disciplined, much more precise, you know, much more intentional person than I ever was. I think as a young man, I was, you know, like a lot of young men, I was kind of drifting, trying to figure out who I was. And you, know, you find out pretty quick who you are when you're getting yelled at by the drill instructors in the academy. I've never had that experience, but I, I believe it, you know, cause you either stand there and you grow or you say, this is not for me. And you and, become a salesman and you become a salesman. You walk away and you grow. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, and it's funny too, because in the Academy, I discovered that the two types of people that had the easiest time transitioning through the process, uh, which for at the time, the LA County Sheriff's Academy was a four month process to get through before you graduated. Um, those two groups were primarily people with military experience, which I did not have, or people who had played high school football. Mm. And the two things they have in common is they both were people that got used to someone yelling at them all the time. Um, so it didn't really phase those guys. But um, for people like me, I had to uh, I had to adjust. So. And I did. So. 30 years, nearly 29 years in law enforcement. What did your career progression look like during that time? Did you become the guy um, yelling at, at new recruits at any point? Yeah. In a, well, no, I never actually worked at the academy, but I was a training officer and uh, I ran the training program for a while and I was a football coach, ironically. Oh, there you so go. I was football. I was a football coach for 10 years. So oh, wow. I, I did do my share of barking at people and I, got pretty proficient at it <laughs> and getting results from the right kind of barking at the right time for sure. So there's a meme sometimes you'll see on the internet or on social media where it shows, you know, the path, the path we think we're going to go and it's a straight line. And then the path you actually go and it's oh, like this jumble mess, right? Yep. We've all seen that. Mm-hmm. So that perfectly epitomizes my career. Uh, I went in so many different directions in my career. None of it was planned. All of it was based on saying yes. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they say that when in investing, some of the some of the big investors say that you know when people are running away, you should run towards it, right? right. Uh, some investing advice, career advice, sometimes can work the same way. 
a lot of the assignments that I took were not the cool, not the trendy, not the things that other police officers or sergeants or lieutenants or whatever level I happen to be in the department. It's not what they were trying to do. And I seized opportunities to take things that other people didn't want to do. And that put me in interesting jobs like forensics and crime scene recreation, media relations, doing um, PIO work where I was you know, on camera doing interviews or writing press releases, uh, homeland security work, uh, disaster preparation, working in the emergency operations center, doing emergency management. There were a lot of things that I did in my career that I think, you know, most young police officers don't start off their career going, hey, I want to do that. And I didn't either, honestly. There were opportunities that came around and I got curious and thought, hey, I'll try that. And then, you know, in the case of when I worked for forensics, I was in that I was in that department for four years as an investigator. And then I ran the department for another seven years as a sergeant. Wow. So I did 11 years. I went to homicides for 11 years Wow! in a, in a job that I never planned on doing. It just dropped in my lap and ended up going to something like 250 homicide scenes, which is probably more than your average police officer gets to see in a career. Right. Yeah. No, that's, uh, that's, it's amazing. I think, you know, a, a lot of us, um, you know, I, I, and I know I've heard Mike, uh, talk about kind of similar opportunities and, you know, his mantra for our Institute is the answer is always yes. Um, you know, I, I personally, you know, try to live a life of being willing to try things and, um, you know, eventually you might wind up on a podcast even so. <laughs> well, and I can, you know, as a journalist, I can tell you, I worked with a, my fair share of PIOs for local law enforcement, and there is a tectonic difference between the good PIOs and the bad PIOs. And that's important work. And each one of those, you know, builds on the next in, in unexpected ways, I would imagine. And so all these opportunities you've been talking about, Jim, you know, th this is during your law enforcement uh, portion of your career. Is that right? Correct. Yeah. And, and so, you know, I'm, I'm wondering, so as, as you, that came to a close and that's been, I, I think you said uh, about 10 years ago uh, or nearly. And so you've transitioned into uh, private sector security. Talk a little bit about that and, and maybe how, you know, the, the opportunities that you took during your law enforcement career, you know, helped prepare you for, um, you know, next, next steps and things like that. Yeah. So, uh, in 2002, I was promoted to Lieutenant and, um, and I got my wish. I got sent back to patrol. I was a watch commander on night shift. I was in charge of our training programs. So all the training officers reported to me and two of the sergeants that worked for me. I was rewriting the training manual. I was really in touch with sort of the field, right? And that was for, you know, for a police officer, that's where you want to be. It's, it's all about what happens in a black and white with uniformed police officers dealing with everyday stuff. So I was pretty happy, but 9-11 really changed my career tra trajectory. Because at that time, a lot of things were changing in law enforcement. We were starting to do a lot of work in terrorism. A lot of funding was coming in from the federal government, um, particularly grants for counterterrorism activities and um, 
emergency response and things like that. And um, they were looking to move someone at the lieutenant level up into the administration to start essentially crunching numbers. It wasn't the job I really wanted. A friend of mine who had just made captain called me and said, please, please, please take this job. You're the right fit for it. So I said, yes. Yes. Which, oh. you know, I know that's the theme of today, but I'll, <laughs> I'll tell you, it's, uh, it's kind of a joke for me because I, I just have this tendency to say yes, especially the things that sound a little bit outside the box. And mm-hmm. this was pretty far outside the box. So I started working in admin and I started working on um, two Homeland Security grant programs where we were working on uh, new training and equipment. And it was all the stuff that a lot of law enforcement and, and, and fire agencies were working on in the early 2000s after you know the 9-11 attacks. And then slowly but surely, I got pulled into the, into the um, operational environment and I started running an operational team that did a lot of that work. Pretty soon, I started developing some expertise in Homeland Security. I had gone through a couple of Homeland Security executive programs, uh, one through USC and the other one through the Manhattan Institute. And I kind of got the bug and it it really interested me. And then I found out about Naval Postgraduate School, which was at that point, mm, I started in 2010. I think they started the program in 2004. So it was a pretty new master's degree program. And they were recruiting some folks from around the country and they were looking for, quote, the best and the brightest. And I remember when I read the literature, I thought, oh my God, I'm not going to get in this program. It's really, this is a big thing to tackle. I knew one person that had, had successfully gotten in the program. So I picked the guy's brain and I ended up getting in the program. I got my master's in Homeland Security. I hadn't even been in school for a long time, so the experience was pretty overwhelming. But after I graduated, I started doing a lot of work in the department that was related to Homeland Security. I ran the Emergency Operations Center. I developed a team uh, during those years called the Emergency Response Team. We had a mobile command center. We go out to large scale events and manage those. And that culminated in the moving of the Space Shuttle Endeavor in 2012. So in 20, in 2012, NASA was retiring a lot of these old uh, space shuttles and cities were vying for the chance to get the space shuttles moved to museums or displays. And it just so happened that the city of Los Angeles and the California Science Center won the bid to get the retired space shuttle Endeavor and move it to the California Science Center. So they had to fly the thing across the country, they had to land at LAX, and then they had to put it on this big uh, mover and move it across the city of LA. It was about a 12-mile route, uh, half of which went through the city where I was working as a lieutenant. Well, and when you say say fly it across the country, it wasn't, the the shuttle wasn't actually doing the flying, right? It was strapped to the top. No, no, no. The 747. I think the biggest jet I've ever seen in my life, because I remember when it, I think that was the one that flew over Austin. And they flew low enough over yeah. a whole bunch of cities that you could see it relatively well for a few minutes. And it um, it looked like a lot of bird. Let's put it that way. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So the move happened in October of 2012. And I got contacted by the chief in May. And she called me in and said, hey, this thing is coming. NASA's working it out with the city. N- nobody wants to 
handle this. Nobody wants to be the person on point because it's a big operation. And um, there's some real doubts about, you know, do we have the resources to management, manage it? Say yes to that. And, yeah. Oh, and that's the funny part of this story. So she says, she, she points at me and she says, I've already talked to the captains and they are very reluctant. So I'm asking you, can you do this? Just like that. And I, without taking a breath, I said, absolutely. Yep. Yes, absolutely. And she yeah. said, okay, good. So I walked out of her office and at the time I was working as a, the executive officer to the chief. So my office was a, down the hallway and I'm walking down the hallway and the whole way I'm thinking, what did you just do? Like <laughs> my, I felt flush in my face. I'm like, you just said yes to something that you have no idea how to do. And so, um, no I got to my office and I picked up my phone and I called a friend of mine who was a sergeant on the department who had been my operations section chief on a lot of our, our call outs. He picked up the phone. I said, Jeff, you're not going to believe what I just got us into <laughs> us, <laughs> I mean, us right away. Yeah. Us. So, so we spent six months working on the plan with California science center, the engineers, a lot of other law enforcement and fire agencies. Uh, of course, we had a partner with Los Angeles Police Department because a lot of the route was in their jurisdiction. So a lot of their senior level people were involved in the planning. The meetings were endless. I think at one point I had something like I don't know, 150 meetings mm -hmm. and I had like almost a thousand emails between us. And so in that process, I got contacted by uh, Southern California Edison, the power company. Right. And they said, hey, we're getting ready to go into this meeting with the um, the sports arena that's in your area, which is the forum. We want to be able to use part of that facility as our laydown yard. I didn't know what a laydown yard was, but OK. And we'd like you to come to the meeting with us because we know that you're you're the person who's the incident commander for the for the move. So I went in the meeting and I met these guys. They were planners and they they were asking uh, Madison Square Garden, which owned the building, they were asking them, hey, is there a way we can do this and we can separate it from the crowds that are going to show up to watch the shuttle mm -hmm. go down the street, basically. Right. And so I wrote out a little diagram and I said, yeah, they could do it. They could do it safely. They need to cordon off this area and put up fencing and they need to have some ingress and egress and blah, blah, blah. We have to make sure we have the right security. We're going to have our command post across the street. So let's make sure we have liaisons in each other's command post so we can communicate. Next thing I knew, I was on the Edison team. So for most of that six-month period, we did a lot of planning of moving infrastructure, moving poles, mm. de-energizing lines on the day that the shuttle was going to move, right? Because the shuttle is large. I mean, the, mm -hmm. the tail of the shuttle on top of the mover is about the height of a mm, maybe four or five-story building. Sure. Yep. So it's not driving under the transmission lines, which are the lines on the big towers. So you, they had to bring in cranes and de-energize those lines and the cranes had to lift the line so that the tail could get underneath the lines. That, is, that takes an incredible amount of planning sure. in the utility space, which I learned at that point. And then the distribution lines, which are the smaller lines on the, on the smaller poles that come to your house, right? Bring power to your house. What they were doing is they were de-energizing those and then they were just clip them and take them down and then the shuttle would roll over them and then they put them back up. Mm. And so we had to plan out each phase of this so that we would have teams leaping, sort of leapfrogging ahead of the shuttle 
to make sure that this got done in time so we keep the progress of the shuttle moving. Without knocking out power to a whole neighborhood accidentally. <laughs> yes. In fact, we were able to do this. And we the only power outage we caused was in a very small geographical area and probably um, and probably impacted less than a thousand customers for maybe about an hour and a half. And it was in the middle of the night, like three o'clock in the morning. So it was a very successful operation. Oh, yeah. Clearly the Edison folks knew what they were doing. They were very smart. I had learned a little bit about critical infrastructure and the power grid when I was at Naval Postgraduate School. So some of the things that they were trying to explain to me about the engineering of it made sense because I, I was grounded in some of the terminology. And then after it, the, I, they called me and they said, hey, you know, we're putting together this program to expand our emergency management capabilities, and we think you might be a good fit. And at the time, I mean, you know, I had a good job, so I said no. And then fast forward to 2014, and I was starting to think about retiring, and I was trying to figure out, do I retire in 2014, or do I stick around for a couple more years and do some other things? And at that point, I had been promoted captain. Uh, and again, they called me, they called me again and they said, Hey, we got this job. We think, you know, somebody at your department might be a good fit if they're retiring from the department. Um, if you know anybody there. And so I thought about it and I called them back and I said, what if I, what if I put in for the job? And, um, they seemed a little shocked at that, that I would want a job doing that. So I started off in, in Edison when I, at the year I retired, I literally went from one job to the next, like almost the next day. They were starting a new uh, function. It was an intelligence function within their emergency management, and it was called the Watch Office. Very similarly modeled after the Federal Watch Office in Washington, D.C. for the Department of Energy. And they, they didn't know how to put it together. So they brought in five, five of us from different disciplines and said, OK, we're going to give you all this training on what we do. And then we want you guys to put together how would this, how would this work? Right? How would we gather information? How would we disseminate it? What's important? What's not important? How do we help the, the decision makers in the company um, make better decisions with the, the information that you guys gather and disseminate? And that's what, what we did. And if, that's if, how I started. I'm sorry. What are you, you know, what is a watch office watching for? You know, what are y'all looking at? What kinds of information are you gathering? So really, it comes down to two big buckets for the most part. It's stuff that's going on externally in the world, right, that could impact the grid. And that could be anything from uh, weather, seismic activities, criminal activity, terrorism, any of that stuff. And then a lot of internal. And it's kind of funny. A lot of people ask me, well, why would you need to have internal? I mean, don't they know? Well, when you have a company that's spread out over 50,000 square miles with, you know, 13,000 employees and 110 manned facilities, and you have, you know, discipline silos like information technology or transmission and distribution or generation, they all kind of live in their own little worlds. And so connecting those silos and sharing information in a way that makes the whole company better is actually really critical. And that became a big part of the mission was knowing who the stakeholders were in the company with the most vital up-to-date information on what was going on in their part of the, the sort of the universe, and then sharing that in a daily report that executives and decision makers could read at 8.30 in the morning 
in 10 minutes and say, I know what's going on in IT. I know what's going on in, you know, T&D. I know, I, I know we're, we have a storm coming or we have a brush fire burning or the EOC has been activated because we have a storm or whatever. Gotcha. Those are all things that are hard unless you have a central place that gathers and disseminates that information. Um, and that's what I worked on for the fir- first two years of my career there. Yeah, that, uh, that, that sounds critically important. I just wanted to, to tug on the internal threats for um, just for a second. You know, so you're, you're not even really at that point talking about bad actors or internally or, you know, uh, things going on. But, but it, it's really just the uh, sharing of information as, as the threat internally. Absolutely. And a lot of big companies have these kinds of challenges. This is not unique sure. to my company. And it's not even indicative of a bad business. It's just, it's just, the, it's reality. It's, it's what you got to deal with. And I'll give you a, a perfect example. Let's say you have a major storm coming in, right? And you guys in Texas, you know what that's mm-hmm. like. You get major storms, you get power outages, mm-hmm. which means you have crews on the road that are putting up new poles, stringing new line, fixing broken transformers, all those kinds of things. That's a huge logistical coordination to get that done. Yeah. Just like when there's a shuttle coming through, except uh, in, in this case, it was unplanned. Right. Well, the thing, the nice thing about storms is you do see them coming, right? So, okay, we know on, let's say Thursday, there's going to be a big storm and we know it's going to probably impact our, our infrastructure. So we're going to stage equipment and stage people, get them ready, so on and so forth. Right. But let's say IT is getting ready to take one of our major technology systems offline for an update. So between this time and this time, this major system is going to go down. Normally, we might not know about that, Mm. right? Because the notifications that go out don't necessarily hit everyone. Or if they do, they, they don't get noticed. That system might be vital to have up when you're responding to the storm. So a place like the watch office hears that and says, okay, we're not only we're going to put this in the daily report, but we're going to escalate this to the executives who are running the storm so that they know that they can talk to IT and figure this out. And maybe IT delays their update of their system for another week until after the storm passes. That seems incredibly simple. But in a big company where you're running a complex system and the grid is very complex, that, that, that is much more nuanced than you think it is. And having a, a structure in your company that gathers and disseminates information and escalates things and connects critical stakeholders is absolutely vital. And that, you know, the watch office has turned out to be one of the probably one of the best things the company's done in the last 10 or 15 years because, I mean, they get the company relies on that that office quite a bit. And I didn't really necessarily want to work in the office long-term. I committed to two years just to help them build it and what it would look like and bring what I had for experience along with the other folks that joined the team um, and go from there. Well, it it sounds like, and I, I have this thought pretty much every time we record, it comes up again and again and again in critical infrastructure. It skirts the line between simple and challenging. You know, it's not complex necessarily. It's not strenuous to to decode. You're not, you know, it's not a riddle. It's just logistics, which are so important 
and just getting everybody to talk together and, you know, have a, a common yep. base all reading the same thing every morning. Conceptually, that's not, you know, that's pretty simple. In practice, that's not easy to put together. That's not easy to get everybody on the same page. And it comes back over and over and over again to just logistics and preparation and in a way, and I, you know, in a way, not overthinking things, which always strikes me as compelling. Yeah. If you read an after action review from any critical event, any emergency response, the two things that will always stick out in terms of lessons learned will always be around communication and logistics. And when I say logistics, it means moving uh, people and resources to the right places at the right time where they're needed. If you can master logistics and communication, you can run any emergency. All the other stuff is, is easy. It's doable. Those two things are always the things that if they break down, the response breaks down. Yeah. Gotcha. Okay. So, so you've, you've set up the, uh, the watch office and, uh, the plan was to do that for a couple of years. How, how did that plan play out for you? Uh, I was actually getting ready to leave. I'd gotten an offer to go overseas and do some emergency response work in another country. Um, and I went to the bosses and said, Hey, I'm thinking about taking this other job. I want to give you guys a heads up with a lot of time so that if you need to replace me, you got time to backfill. And um, about a week later, they came to me and said, hey, would you be willing to stay another two years if we gave you this other job? <laughs> <laughs> so, and so the job they gave me was uh, manager of the emergency operations center. Uh, and so I did that for a couple of years. And uh, that was probably the most interesting job I did in the company. And that was right when we were really starting to ramp up on a lot of our responses to the big brush fires. Mm -hmm. So starting in 2016, I was going to a lot of the brush fires with our mobile command center and being set up in the what we would call law enforcement is the command post. Uh, I think fire would probably call it, you know, a base camp. Um, they call it a laydown yard in utility parlance. So. Um, it's where all the equipment stages, it's where all the leadership meets. And then there's another leadership team back at the EOC and there's communication between them. So I was either at the EOC helping to run things there, or I was out in the field at the emergency, whatever that happened to be. And many times it was a, it was a brush fire. So I got to see emergency response on a really large scale from the ground level up in a way that even as a police officer responding to emergencies, I, I, I hadn't seen. Wow. You know, when you spend three, three weeks at a brush fire in um, working 20 hour days and where they have, you know, 600 crew members and you're replacing 600, 800, a thousand poles that have to be replaced and stringing thousands and thousands of feet of new line to re repair and replace equipment that's been destroyed in the fire and then bring customers back up and all the things involved in that. It's a pretty complex machine, that whole structure, the, the incident management team and the, and by extension, the field crews that go out and do the physical work. And the learning was exponential. I've never had a time in my career as a police officer or since where I've learned more in such a short time just by being there. Yeah, 20, 20 hour days and uh, the intensity of, of those emergency operations, certainly I, I could imagine uh, really lend towards a lot of 
fast learning mm-hmm. <laughs> trial by fire. Yeah, literally. Yeah. Yeah. And then, and then in the middle of all that in 20 in about the middle of 2016, I went back to school to get my doctorate. So I was doing all of this emergency response stuff and I was working on my doctorate at the same time. Sure. So and the literal so, fire and the figurative fire at the same time. Oh, it was crazy. It was crazy. There was one point where I was working. They sent me up to Northern California for fires that PG&E was dealing with. So we were there on mutual assistance. So I worked in their laydown yard for a week and I was on my way back and I had a presentation at USC in the morning. Um, it was a group presentation. And so I, I'm. I'm driving back from Santa Rosa, pretty far drive. I'm, I'm going to say mm, probably a little over six, maybe seven hours worth of driving if you don't stop. Wow. And it's also in the middle of the night. And so I'm driving and I've got one of my team members who's a, who's a friend who was also in the program and we're on the phone and we're literally going through our presentation in the morning as I'm driving back from the fire. And I still have my work clothes on, my work boots. I'm dirty. I look like I just, you know, came out of uh, a brush fire. Yeah, right. Go, go figure, right? So I arrived in the morning with no sleep and actually had to get in front of the class at USC and do a presentation. But yeah, it was, it was kind of like that. Or sitting in the mobile command center at 8 o'clock in the evening at a brush fire and working on a paper. Yep. I was actually just about to ask if you had... Um you know, recommendations for career seekers. And, uh, you know, I know your, your career path, we've been talking about it, you know, at the circuitous journey and, uh, you know, maybe working 20 hour days and doing a higher education, uh, post-grad program at the same time, isn't for everyone or. No, no. And especially when you're in your mid fifties. So I went back, I went back to school to get my doctorate when I was 55 and I graduated when I was 59. So, um, kudos. Yeah. Some would argue that at that late stage of your life, like you wouldn't be going to school and working at the same time, but yeah, I, I'm a say yes guy. And I'm also a person of amazing curiosity. Like I just never get tired of learning new things. I'm, I'm the absolute definition of a lifetime learner. And the, and the opportunity to get accepted into a program at USC that only accepts eight people a year, mm. um, I couldn't say no to that. So there I was getting a doctorate in my 50s while I was rolling the brush fires. I don't see anything wrong with that. I'm pushing 50 myself and uh, in the middle of a second master's degree with aspirations to go on from there. So that's great. Well, good luck. It's, uh, <laughs> it, it, it it's there's an upside and a downside to late late education so i didn't go i got my aa degree right before i became a police officer so i graduated in 1985 right right as i was joining the police academy and then i didn't go back to school for 23 years so i was getting my bachelor's degree in my mid 40s i got my masters when i turned 50 and I got my doctorate when I was 59. So the, the, the downside is, is that at that late stage of your life, um, you know, you're, you've done a lot and you don't have a lot of, you know, your energy level is not what it was when you were 25. Right. And you, 
generally you have a lot of responsibility by that point in your life. I mean, I, I, I have a big family, a lot of people depending on me and I had an established career and I had to find a way to work school around career. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of challenges. The upside of a late education is that you have so much practical experience and lived experience to ground you in what it is you're trying to learn. And that was always my thing when I was in school was we would talk about academic stuff and we would talk about theories and, you know, how do we come up with, uh, you know, how do we prove this hypothesis and what kind of research do we need and what papers have been written on it and what's been said and, you know, um, all that. But at the end of the day, my question was, how do we take this information, operationalize it so that it can be used in the field? to actually make an impact on the world, not just some grandiose academic theory that, you know, professors talk about in, you know, conferences. So that's the upside is late in life, you know, the right questions to ask. Well, and I would imagine, so you're standing up there, you're tired, you've been driving all night, you're, you're covered in, in ash and dirt and mud. I would imagine that gave you more credibility in the eyes of your professors and your classmates, not less. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I'm, absolutely. There was, there was no doubt. I, I, I have to say that my peers in the class and my professors gave me a lot of respect. And, and they gave me a lot of latitude because they knew that I was juggling you know, a lot at the same time. But I was able to take real world experience and apply it to what I was studying. So like I wrote my dissertation on um, terrorist attacks of the power grid. And I studied thousands of them. I think I studied at one point something like 5,000 different attacks around the world over mm, 20 some years in different countries against oil and gas and electric utilities. And I was waist deep in, in databases and looking at different situations to try to build trends to look at a, a essentially a, a research question that I was trying to explore which is you know how do you quantify that threat oh. and um to operationalize so it. my my yeah and the thing of it is is that so I developed a, a mathematical theory for how you can quantify the threat but then I also put together more of a qualitative view of it. So I would say my my dissertation was more of a mixed method approach. Um, so there's a lot of there's a lot of qualitative data in the in the document. It's 200 pages, but there's also some mathematical computation that I came up with that I think could be relevant. I'm not the biggest math whiz, but uh, I worked a little bit on some Bayesian mathematical theories that I was able to put into the document. Um, so I was really juggling the practical world with the, you know, the academic world and trying to make them work together. Yeah. And that, and I think that's the advantage of learning things by doing them. So I'm, I think my message to your students is, you know, don't get too caught up in, in just the education, just the degrees. They're important, but it's also important to get out there and do things have experiences because they, they, they work together in tandem. Yeah. And I, I appreciate all of that, that you're saying it really, um, you know, it demonstrates why you're a good fit with the Institute and, and resonates with 
you know, kind of some of our um, goals and, uh, you know, in terms of doing research and developing training to make it relevant, to be a force multiplication for doing the work for, you know, for uh, operationalizing it, if you will. Well, and that, that quantitative qualitative gap you were saying, that makes a lot of sense because the academics are going to want the big grand theory of everything. And they're going to want the numbers and the statistics that say, Hey, there's a high risk here. There's a low risk there. And that everybody in the field is going to say, well, there are all these circumstantial differences, right? All these new changes and new threats and new issues that qualitatively don't fit with that model. And, you know, we in the academy and in the industry have to find a way to negotiate that and, and bridge that gap because I'm like you, I'm not a numbers guy at all. So I can, I can really appreciate that. Yeah. It boils down to the, the, so what Mm -hmm. we talk about. Yeah. So, so the, the interesting part of this is that, so I work on the security side now. I don't work in emergency management. I'm still with the same company. I still work in utility and still working in infrastructure protection, but I'm looking more at securing the facilities and the critical equipment now from attacks, um, which is more focused than what I was doing before. But one of the things that, that we always have to deal with is there's two sides to the coin. So you have sort of the field group. These are the folks that actually have to do the work. And so for them, qualitative really does matter, right? Telling stories really does matter. But for the executives and the people that make the funding decisions, because some of the some of the security solutions are expensive, you have to demonstrate that um, you're using a risk-based approach. And the only way to really communicate that is to boil it down to some sort of a mathematical measurement, right? So we work very hard to take things that are hard to quantify and quantify them. Even, even if those methods for quantification are based on probabilistic estimates. But once you build that mechanism, you can have a real conversation with your enterprise risk folks to say, hey, we're going to spend $20 million to protect this asset, but it's worth the $20 million right. because it, re- it meets this risk threshold and we've measured it. And that is becoming more and more important, not just in the utility space, in oil and gas, probably in all the critical infrastructure sectors, because a lot of the security solutions are are expensive and the the company's got to be able to make their make it work with their bottom line. Right. Because all the companies that we work for in private sector, they're not in the business of security. They're in the business of doing something else. They have a core business that that makes them the money that keeps them in business. So we are nothing more than an expense, really. So the only way to demonstrate value is by being able to take fuzzy things like risk and threat and quantify them in a way that makes investment justifications easier. Exactly. And, and that's so it turns out that the work that I did in that area does help me in a real practical way at, in the business that I work in now. Yeah, you you've got to translate that uh, value add especially into dollars and cents mm-hmm. for the bottom line in a lot of these um in you know private businesses. But, but Jim, this is, this has been great. Um, I want to 
uh, give you the opportunity for a, a last word and uh, just in the interest of time, kind of wrap things up. But um, any, anything else you'd like to add before we close the show? I think that for young people who are looking for something interesting to build a life around, I think that critical infrastructure is a great place to go. I fell into it like a lot of professionals fall into it, but it's a career now that you can you can enter with some intention um, and you don't necessarily have to have a master's degree. There's a lot of good certification programs. Sam Houston has uh, a good program now. And, and the other thing is combining that with working in the industry. If you can get, especially if you can get an intern job while you're in school so that you're working in the field that you're eventually going to go in while you're studying the field, that's a great one-two punch. And I've seen a lot of young folks highly successful doing uh, doing summer intern programs. So hopefully for your your audience that is, you know, in the younger demographic and looking forward to maybe building a career, hopefully that's some good advice. I think it is. I think it is. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Medea. Uh, we really appreciate your time and your expertise. Thank you for having me. It's been a great, uh, great discussion. Thank you. Yeah, thanks, Jim. And uh, you can learn more about all the activities we have going on at IHS by checking out our website at ihsonline.org. You'll find information about our research topics, educational offerings, and other ways to connect with us. We'd love to hear from you. And no, you can't end this oh. without Mike's. <laughs> I can hear him <laughs> shouting at the speakers. Here at IHS, <laughs> we are disruptive, disruptive. but helpful. <laughs> Y'all have a good one. Thank you. Structurally Sound is the podcast for the Institute for Homeland Security at Sam Houston State University. It is supported by the College of Criminal Justice and the Mass Communication Department. Our hosts are Michael Asplund, Grant Threat, and Marcus Funk, who also produces and edits the show. Our music was written by Kevin Clifton, and artwork was created by the Idea Factory, part of the Department of Art at Sam Houston State. Additional support comes from Shannon Lane, Rose Cater, Charles Henson's and enthusiastic bearcats everywhere.